Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Jimenez with you, as always, here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. I am so blessed that you're tuning into another episode. Today is podcast 97. So I just can't wait as we dive into part two, as we're looking at Thursday of Passion Week. And if you missed any previous podcast, I don't know what platform you use to download this podcast to listen, but always go back, make sure that you're always you know setting it up so that when we do send out a new one, that you're getting alerted and you can download it. And man, I am so thankful. I just want to say before we dive right into our study today on the podcast, thank you for those who pray for us. Thank you for those who give. Matter of fact, I want to say as we're entering now November uh, and you know, got Thanksgiving coming up and then the holidays uh, right after that for Christmas, you know, we start entering into the end of the year giving. And as you know, Stand Strong Ministries is a nonprofit we are able to do what we're what we're doing in my travels, in my writing, in my uh, speaking, as well as podcasts where we produce this and other videos that we put out. We do this because we believe that God has called us to stand strong in our faith and to equip the next generation, whether they be parents, whether it be young people, pastors. But we can't do that without your prayers, without your support and financial giving. So you can always go to standstrongministries.org, click on donate, and you can give a one-time gift or you could become a reoccurring Stand Strong supporter. So we just want you to know that because we are so grateful for those who share the podcast out there on social media. You're telling your church about it and you're supporting us and you're praying for this. And I just want you to know uh, that I am so grateful for that. Uh, It means a lot to me and it continues to encourage me as we come here in the studio to record these podcasts, knowing that there are people just like you listening uh, and joining with me week after week for the last, gosh, two plus years, we're going to be hitting a hundred podcasts in the next few weeks. But just knowing that you're out there in different parts of the world coming together because of our love for Jesus and wanting to grow in his word, I tell you is a special, special thing. So with that being said, we now enter part two of Thursday where there's a dispute now that breaks out before, remember, leading up to this was the preparation of Passover meal. And I want to just go back to a quote that I'd shared in the previous podcast to lead into this dispute in Luke chapter 22 so that we understand the setting of what has just been taking place that then breaks out, you know, this fight, this contentious rivalry among the disciples. Here's what the new Bible commentary says, quote, the normal procedure at the Passover meal was to have an opening prayer, which was followed by the first of four cups of wine and a dish of herbs and sauce. Then the story of the institution of the Passover was recited. Psalm 113 was sung and the second cup of wine was drunk. After a grace, the main course of roast lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs was eaten. And after a further prayer, the third cup of wine was drunk. Psalm 114 through 118 were then sung and the fourth cup of wine was drunk. So in the process of this night, as this was unfolding to partake of the Passover meal, a fight breaks out among the disciples. So listen now to Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. 
It says here in verse 24, a dispute, a contentious rival also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So let's pause for a moment and kind of get a little backstory here. It's probably likely that the disciples broke out into another argument over who is the greatest based on their seating arrangements. Or perhaps because Peter and John helped Jesus with the Passover arrangements. So whatever the reason that caused this dispute, the disciples struggled over this matter quite a bit. If you go back to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, or Luke chapter 9, 46 through 48, the disciples were more about self-promotion oftentimes. They're, they're struggling through this. And here is the son of man who didn't come to be served, but to serve. Remember, Jesus was saying that in response to them fighting over who the greatest is and even coming to Jesus and asking him to tell them who he has as his favorites. Can you imagine that? So this self-promotion, this promoting of themselves was interfering with the work that Jesus was there to do to fulfill, right, in Jerusalem. They were essentially more concerned, not about the Passover meal at the time. They were more concerned about the recognition that they believed they deserved while they were looking at the meaning and the significance of the Passover meal. So here in verse 25, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship. That means they exercise rule or to reign over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, which means an honorary title of those who do good, you know, who provide assistance or help. So what Jesus does is he immediately responds by mentioning how Gentile rulers fight and covet vain titles. This was not to be uh, with the disciples. And notice how Jesus calls them out and says, are you guys trying to be like benefactors? You're trying to label yourself, you know, make a name tag of, you know, in the order of who's sitting around where in this Passover meal. We're to focus on the deliverance of God from bondage, taking his people, the Hebrews from bondage, your ancestors. And you guys are in bondage because of your self-promotion, because of your vain titles that you're coveting. And verse 26, but not so with you. See, he's calling them out. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. That means a novice. And the leader as the one who serves. That word serves is daikonon. This is where we get the word deacon from. It means to serve in a lowly way. So although Jesus had stressed this point many times, it is indeed a lesson that needs to be emphasized time after time. I mean, you think about in our lives, how many times do we have to call out pride in our life or the ego in our life or the self-promotion or think of ourselves more highly than we ought to? I mean, I can't even count in my own life. So this is, it's unfortunate, but this is reality in the human condition. So notice what Jesus does here now in verse 27. He poses a question. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table, but I'm among you as the one who serves. So now he points it to him. The world measures, what Jesus is saying is this, the world measures success based on the number of people that serve you. However, true achievement is based on the number of people you serve. This phrase, I am among you, 
The disciples didn't need to look far to capture the true meaning and example of a servant. Jesus is pointing to himself. As you're looking and pointing to the Passover, you're seeing the protection and the faithfulness and the deliverance of God. And as you look to Jesus, you're seeing that fulfillment. Jesus will demonstrate right after this lesson on servanthood because what he's going to do, he's going he's to wash their feet. He's going to show them that I am the ultimate servant. I love what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this. He said, King of Kings is a title full of majesty, but servant of servants is the name which our Lord preferred when he was here below, end quote. Isn't that awesome? That's what Jesus did. In verse 28, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. The word trials here, Jesus is saying, is you've been with me during the testing You've examined my character. So what he was doing is he, again, as a reflecting back hundreds of years ago with Passover, he's saying, look back in my life, examine my character. As you look at God, when did God ever disappoint or let Israel down? When have I ever let you down? So he says, when, when he says here, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, meaning you've examined, you've seen, he says in verse 29, and I assign, meaning I designate a formal position to you as my father signed to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table. This is beautiful, my friends, because he is talking about the messianic banquet. He says that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So rather than be so fixated on the here and now and miss the whole meaning and the significance behind what is leading up to my death and resurrection, the day will come if you just trust me, that you guys will all be your equals, you will all be sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the disciples, remember, they frequently argued and fought for power on earth. And Jesus is telling them, because they put their faith and trust in him, and they will usher in the church age. But again, they're still not fully there on Thursday night at Passover. But Jesus speaks that his coming kingdom will be here soon. And guess what? They will join in as judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. Go back to Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. So he kind of hushes them up to say, look, you guys, you just don't know. Just trust me, look to me. And what he does, instead of just scolding them, what he does is he acts upon this. So we go from Luke 22 to now looking at John chapter 13, verses two through 20. This is where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Verse 2 of John 13, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So let's pause here. John reflects back on how Satan had already swayed Judas to betray Jesus and abandon his post with the other disciples. If you go back to John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, this reveals the intense demonic warfare that was raging while Jesus teaches about service, when he's washing their feet, not about being self-promoting, not about rivalry and disputing, but walking in humility and trusting him for his future kingdom. Don't be trying to establish a kingdom here on earth right now. That's, that's of the flesh. That's not what Christ came to do, but that's what Satan wanted them to talk about. He says it's about partaking in the Passover meal that points to his ultimate sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. In Luke chapter 22, verses three through six, listen to these words. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, 
who was of the number of the twelve, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. So this is where Satan is entering in using Judas Iscariot. John 13, verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to Judas, What you are going to do, do quickly. So even as Jesus washes the disciples' feet, even as he loves Judas, Satan enters Judas and he leaves and says, I found the opportunity, go get the soldiers and come arrest Jesus. So now here in verse three, Jesus knowing that the father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. So all this time, Jesus had known what his father had sent him to do. Go back to John chapter three. Although everything has been given to Jesus by the Father, he nonetheless, notice here, he humbles himself. It says that all things had been given by God and he was going to go back to God, but he rose and took this opportunity to humble himself into this lowly position, the lowliest position you can do in that culture. The lowliest servant washed the guest's feet. And that's what Jesus does to his disciples. They're promoting themselves by rank and file. He's saying this is true service. This is true sacrifice. And in the midst of all this, John makes a, a point here that he's going to be going back to God, a statement pointing to the deity and the eternal majesty of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus would soon be exalted to the Father. And yet he is, he is becoming a lowly servant. He lays aside his outer garment. So what Jesus does is he takes out the outside of his garment off to express vulnerability to them. That's not what men typically did in public. So he's becoming vulnerable to them. So this is probably very awkward and certainly caused all of them to take their mind off of the, the rivalry and to focus on Jesus. And as they're looking at him now, in verse 5, Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash. This is the Greek word nepto, meaning a part of the body. He starts taking a part of the body, in this case, the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So previously, Jesus used a child. Remember, if you go back to Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, Jesus used a child to teach the disciples about humility. Now... Jesus humbles himself to the lowliest level of servitude and washes his disciples' feet. You see, it was an honorable act for the master of the home to provide a servant to wash his guest's feet. Now, one of the commentaries, The Life of Christ, which is a study to the gospel record, listen to what they say. The disciples were all contending for the highest position, so none of them would stoop to washing the other's feet. For in so doing, he would assume a humble slave's role and so undermine his claim to be the greatest. That then was the atmosphere when this Passover party reached the third ritual step in observing the Passover. Jesus' action in switching roles from master of the feast to humblest slave gently yet unequivocally rebuked the attitude of his disciples. They must have felt abashed, end quote. Warren Wiersbe says, as in all things, Jesus is our example, and he has completely reversed the measure of true greatness. I love that. 
That's what Jesus is doing here. So notice in verse six, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, meaning master, do you wash, meaning napto, my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Verse eight, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share or no part with me. Now, Peter usually was very direct, yet thoughtless at times, right, with Jesus. Go back to Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9. But Jesus' response has nothing to do with baptism here. It has to do with receiving the complete work of what Jesus came to do. And when he's saying, you have no part in me, saying, you have to accept this, Peter, because you can't let pride get in the way. This example that I'm setting for you you need to receive so that way you yourself can become humble. So Simon Peter in verse nine says to Jesus, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So Peter is admitting the need to be cleansed from his sinful behavior. So he's realizing that it's, it's far beyond himself, that what Jesus is doing is not just a ritual in washing their dirty feet, but he's, he's pointing to his sinfulness. And so Peter responds in in great and utter shame. So Jesus says to him in verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash. That's the Greek word leo, meaning you don't need to be washed all over except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew, verse 10, John writes here, who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus uses two different ritualistic washings. This is very important, my friends, in the context of John chapter 13. Remember the word nepto in Greek means partial washing. And leo is complete washing as a way to signify the salvation he was to offer to the world. So when a person confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you go back to Romans 10, 9 and 10 and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, They are completely washed, leo, from their sin. They are no longer a sinner in the eyes of God. However, when a Christian falls into temptation and sins, they need to confess it. They need to receive a nepto cleansing, meaning of forgiveness, in a certain area of their life. You don't have to be born again again. You're born again once. And when you fall short, uh, John would later articulate this, I believe, from John 13 into 1 John in his letter Chapter 1, verse 9, we know this famous verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So nepto and leo, so even though Jesus was physically doing this, metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, there's two differences here of partial washing and complete washing. So now here in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? So again, the disciples, they were not able to fully grasp the meaning behind, right? Many of what Jesus's actions, what, you know, what he was doing until after the resurrection, just case in point, a lot of times when we're reading John, he'll insert, you know, some commentary, some insight after years of reflection. And so clearly the disciples may have not fully understood the significance of what Jesus was doing, but it certainly conveyed to them how much their master truly loved them. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for, for so I am. 
So Jesus is confirming not only the disciples' loyalty as he has just done this, excluding obviously Judas, but now notice in verse 14, he says, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So if I've loved you, you need to love others. You need to stop bickering among yourselves about who the greatest is. You need to be humbled. You need to go not just literally wash people's feet, but display humility towards one another. Verse 15, for I have given you an example. This means in Greek, a model to emulate. I've given you a pattern that you also should do just as I've done for you. Now, David Guzik writes, quote, none of the disciples were interested in washing each other's feet. Any of them would have gladly washed Jesus's feet, but they could not wash his without having to be available to wash the other's feet. And that would have been an intolerable admission of inferiority among their fellow competitors for the top positions in the disciples' hierarchy. So no one's feet got washed. So Jesus does it himself. And I think that explains not just the love that Jesus, which is an unconditional love, and grace is something that's unmerited, something we do not deserve, but he gives it to us anyway because his love covers a multitude of sin. But it also, my friends, gives us insight as a father, as a mother, as a boss. If you are a leader in any capacity, you need to be a servant leader. You need to exemplify these qualities that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us while he was here on earth. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger. This is the Greek word apostolos, where we get the word apostolic or apostle from. It just means one who is sent. So he says, nor is a messenger one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So we think of an ambassador when you're representing the president or a prime minister uh, to that capacity. You're not greater than them, but you're representing them. And as followers of Christ, we are representing him. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So only Judas failed to believe this and follow the teachings of Jesus, which resulted in suicide. And we know the story of the rest of the disciples. They gave their lives for the gospel. Verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So this is interesting because as he's reflecting on humility and being a servant, Jesus quotes from Psalm 41 verse 9 to describe the blow that was about to come because of Judas Iscariot. This phrase here, ate my bread, is a mark of real fellowship. So Jesus is saying, I never faked my love for you. You could have been one of my disciples, but you refused because it was a false profession. There was not a true confession of faith that Judas had of who Jesus was. This other phrase, lifted his heel, is an insulting gesture. So Jesus was pointing to the utter betrayal, the backstabbing that would occur from a person like Judas, who supposedly, right, who ate bread with him, who was a real friend, supposedly a dear friend, in actuality is an enemy. Verse 19, I'm not telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So when the betrayal and the crucifixion all take place, what Jesus is saying here, the disciples will be able to refer back to the upper room statements that Jesus made here, and then, and only then, fully understand their prophetic meaning. And finally here in verse 20, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. So the disciples would receive the person and message of Jesus Christ. 
and they would take the gospel to the ends of the earth, except for who? Except for Judas. So on next week's podcast, we're going to dive into where Jesus calls out Judas's betrayal amongst the disciples, but we'll see that the disciples were clueless as to what Jesus was saying to Judas at the time. Because again, as I just pointed out here in verses 19 and 20 of John chapter 13, they didn't fully understand these things until after they all occurred. Then it made sense. And you and I can relate to that sometimes. You can be in the midst of something and have partial knowledge. It's making some sense, but you got to continue to stick with it in order to fully make sense of it all. And that's exactly where the disciples were at. So my friends, I pray that the big takeaway on today's message here was that we would be a servant like Jesus. Whatever it is in your life, if it's in a marriage situation, recently while I was speaking somewhere and I had several people come to me and tell me that they were very convicted about how they were not loving as they should love. And that can you know seem very elementary, very basic, but when you and I lose love, when we lose sight and lose focus and lose drive and are not as convicted to love others and to forgive and to humble ourselves to the point of not literally washing our feet, but not focusing so much on our, you know, us getting attention, our titles or self-promoting, and we focus on the needs of others, that means so much more. I just recently was on the phone with a friend who is going through some things and I encourage him by just saying, I am proud of you for who you are. You may have not gotten something that you wanted to achieve, but you you gave as much as you possibly could and you're faithful to that. You're not a failure. And it's so uplifting when you can have a friend, because I have those in my life who humble themselves like Jesus did here and they want to serve me. They want to love me. That is a great demonstration of Christ's love. So I pray that you'd be that Christian and the lives of people around you. So thank you, friends, for listening to today's episode. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening, and keep standing strong in the Word of God.